Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. When you think of psychology, do you picture yourself lying on the couch with a therapist listening to you ramble on about your problems? Or do you picture yourself looking at your own mind every day to grow in your spiritual practice? That's what we'll be talking about today on Spiritual Naturalism Today. Thanks, Brandon. That's a wonderful topic, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm Daniel Strain, your host, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Newberg, B.T. Newberg. Hello. And Jay Forrest. Thank you very much. So, uh... Uh, BT, you were just asking a question here, and what would your answer be to it? Well, I know, <laughs> I know my answer. Yeah, would be um, incorporating psychology to help myself grow on a daily basis. But I've been thinking about this stuff for a while, so I want to hear what you guys think. Okay. Well, that's actually one of the difficulties is when you say psychology. I mean, there's hundreds of different branches of psychology. Not all of them are going to be as useful as some. I That's mean, for sure. like a lot of clinical psychology or, or clinical uh, psychotherapy is going to be more that's going to be, you know, in the offices, on the couch, kind of the traditional thing. And we need to make sure that we're letting people know we're not psychologists. We're not uh, trying to substitute when you need psychological care, you should seek a professional in those areas. So we're not saying this, you know, should do a spiritual practice instead of uh, professional psych psychotherapy or, or psychology. But what we're saying is there's certain branches of psychology that they teach certain things that you can actually use in your daily life. Yeah, that's I a think, great point. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there's there's these uh, different branches that actually they're got principles and stuff to help you live your life better, more meaningful. And some of them actually bring in um, things like a Buddhist practice, mindfulness-based stress reduction, for example, or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, there's dialectic behavior therapy. There's a bunch of these different therapies that they actually have principles in them that you can apply to your spiritual life that will help you better function, uh, being able to deal with the stresses of life. Yeah, um, you know, there's also a whole field of uh, psychology that, uh, a movement within modern psychology that uh, is called positive psychology and, and started emerging in the late 1990s, and it focuses on Rather than focusing on pathology, it focuses on uh, well-being, uh, achieving satisfaction in life. Yeah, definitely. And I think we should also uh, make a distinction, too, between the kind of clinical or counseling psychology that we've been kind of alluded to so far, which would be the kind that's on the couch or, you know, the therapy kind. That and, and then there's research psychology, which is investigating how the mind works. Uh, which is more what more um, the, what like a scientist of the mind would be doing more rather than a therapist. They're tandem and to some extent work hand in hand, but they're two kind of lobes of the field <laughs> that we should keep in mind too. 
And for me, when I think of defining psychology the way I like to uh, incorporate it into my life, I'm talking about the scientific study of mind and behavior. And I think that it's important to emphasize the scientific part. I, I don't think it's going to be a surprise, given that we're all naturalists and we're um, on a show about naturalism here, that I'll be incorporating science and evidence uh, and not using supernatural concepts. But at the same time, even within everything that you could pose about the mind, that's perfectly naturalistic. There are some ideas about how the mind works that's more evidence-based than other ideas, or more open to being investigated in an evidence-based way. And so not all psychologies are, are equal, so to speak. So I, I think that's the kind of thing that is an interesting question to ask and to keep in mind as, as we pursue this kind of topic. And it also should be pointed out, too, that psychology being a relatively new science, there is a lot of disagreement as well. You've got, uh, like I said, you know, hundreds of different modalities, different uh, approaches to it, from behavioral, behavioralism to cognitive-based uh, therapy. Um, the important thing I think you brought out, at least for naturalists, scientific naturalists, people are interested in science, is the evidence, following the evidence. Um, because, you know, Freud, uh, Sigmund Freud was uh, the real pioneer in bringing the metal, medical model into psychology, but he also brought in some things that, I mean, we have no evidence. There's no empirical evidence that there's an id. <laughs> an ego or a super what do these look like what color are they how, you know we don't where are they located in the brain mm -hmm. and uh, Carl Jung also brought in some uh, some ideas that uh, a collective unconsciousness and all these other things that they are not evidence-based um, there may be some indications that there's something there mm -hmm. like in his collective unconsciousness uh, there's some logistics are saying that our language actually serves that purpose, that the archetypes are actually passed down in our language, which makes it very natural, very this-worldly. But there's also the New Age uh, movement that interprets that in the metaphysical. There's mm -hmm. the you know, whole spiritual and metaphysical realm, and you can connect with higher beings and ascended masters and all this other stuff. So I think your point is very important, that we need to follow the evidence and be uh, evidence-based therapies. Yeah, it comes down to methodology. The methodologies that are used in order to arrive at the the concepts and theories and hypotheses, etc. I mean, for example, yeah. Freud, in research psychology, Freud is, it, the field has moved on well be, well past Freud. Um, he's yeah. very, he's, a, he's a historically important, but not really a major part of research, his, uh, research psychology today. And one of the reasons is because his methodology was basically look at one person <laughs> or a very small number of people and then draw conclusions about how the entire human race thinks based on that. <laughs> so, yeah. And not only that, the, the thing that he did is he, uh, as positive psychologists tried to balance, uh, he started a movement of looking at what's wrong with humankind. Mm. And we, instead of looking at the disease, we should look at what is the healthy. If you have a counterfeit dollar bill, you don't compare it with another counterfeit dollar bill. You compare it with the genuine. 
Mm-hmm. And humanistic psychology began that process. Abraham Maslow and uh, Carl Rogers and stuff began to look at what is a ideal human being? What's a fully functional, healthy uh, human being? And when they did that, they found out that the spiritual aspect was, in fact, vital for a he- healthy human being, whether that spiritual aspect is uh, a naturalistic or, you know, what modality or what uh, um, theories that in- in- entails it wasn't the important thing. It was being committed to something greater than yourself, whether it's society, sure. in humanism, or uh the preservation of nature and naturalism and uh, the ecological spirituality. So they can be uh, very much earth-based, natural-based theories. But it's important. It's part of being a full human being is to come out of that, you know, self-centered ego shell, if you will, where we're just worried about me, me, myself, and uh, myself. Yeah, I I really like what you said earlier, Jay, about... um, (laughs) the uh, elements of ancient philosophies and things like that. I really have a lot of uh, uh, interesting, uh, or I have a lot of interest in that kind of thing. I I know that in the past I've heard you refer to uh, the Buddha as um, an early psychologist or uh, something like yeah. that. I think the kind of investigations he did, he didn't enjoy the uh, scientific method as would later be refined. Uh, but I, I think but he, he did. did have an, a rational investigation kind of approach to the human mind. Yeah, there's some people who have called Buddhism a science of the mind. I'm not sure I would go that far, but I think it was uh, – an introspective investigation into the mind and how we get hung up on our attachments and our yeah, maybe aversions. kind of a proto psychology or exactly <laughs> yeah like that. yeah and and I think that that's it's showing that in fact the Buddha may have been light years ahead of many others by the I mean the the sheer number of uh, psychological uh, disciplines that are incorporating mindfulness for an example. That was mm-hmm. pioneered by the Buddha, and you can find that also in Stoicism. And this yeah, idea you know, of, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, gets a lot from Stoicism, and yeah. that's a uh, field of psychology today. Mm-hmm. And another another one that does is acceptance and commitment therapy, which brings in the whole di- whole idea of accepting what is. And trying to the there's another one called dialectic behavior therapy that tries to balance the idea of accepting what is, and still trying to change it. Yeah, that's, you know when the ancient Greeks were doing uh, were asking the question, "What is the best way to live?" They were doing positive psychology, I and mean, they were basically, uh, I would say, they're doing they're pursuing the same goal as it, and uh, they would they would also ask. Uh, you know, they would look at life and they would try to reach what they called eudaimonia, which basically means healthy soul. Uh, so, you know, the the aims of psychology, we didn't have the same terms and we didn't have the same sort of uh, classifications that we use, uh, the same sort of methodologies that we have today. But those aims, those kinds of pursuits 
uh, go way, way back. And, and mm-hmm. I think they yielded fruits that we're still enjoying today that we still are, are getting use out of today. And I think there's more fruits yet for us to enjoy there. I think we've only Absolutely. really scratched the tip of the iceberg in terms of researching what those ancient philosophies have to offer. We're only mm-hmm. really getting started on that. But at the same time, I want to hastily add, too, that I think we should not by any means shrink from uh, critiquing the ancient philosophies and using modern research to question uh, what could be done better. Uh, What what were they vague on and could be refined? What were they just flat out wrong on? Um, Yeah, you know, it's kind of like when you look back on a... uh uh, a decade of music and you think boy that decade was so good but what you're seeing there are the songs that people continue to care about and put on new records and and play more you're not seeing the massive number of other songs in that decade that didn't really go anywhere uh, and so I think the same thing is true with ancient philosophy that the, what the, the ideas we're talking about today are because we recognize them to have shown something, generally speaking, and there's a mountain of ideas behind every good idea that, uh, you know, didn't really go as far. And Yeah. Uh, can I make a slight transition at this point? Because I think we've been going on for a little while here about, um, you know, what, how, <laughs> how we love psychology. Uh, but uh, there might be a listener out there at this point who's just thinking, well, so what? I mean, why should I care? I mean, I, I've, I've, I've got my practice where I do my little meditation or whatever, and I feel pretty good about who I am, and I'm not emotionally unstable. So why should I really even care so much more about psychology than that? Um, for me, it kind of comes down to two big things that psychology can give us as naturalists. And they're related. Um, The first one is psychology opens the way. And what I mean by that is it it contributes um, models of the mind that are articulated in such a way that the concepts you're using actually have some basis in evidence um, and better than more evidence than competing theories that have been you know outcompeted. And I think that's really important because it's one thing to think about facts. It's another thing to think in terms of a model because when you have a model of how the mind works and it's fairly accurate as much as you can at this point in time to how the mind actually works, you can ask questions and derive more answers or at least the more likely answers than you would with a vaguer or less accurate Mm. model. So psychology mm-hmm. opens the way. And the other big thing that I think that psychology can give us is psychology liberates. And that's probably a weird thing to say in, as for science because we don't normally think of science as being a liberating force. You think of spirituality as being that. But to me, it is liberating. And I'll give you a concrete example. Um, for us in the West, uh, regardless of what religion or philosophy we ascribe to, we all have a Christian, a Judeo-Christian um, root in our culture that we're coming out of, and sin is a big thing. And uh, when we do something good or do something bad, we almost kind of instinctually make a judgment on ourselves. If we do something bad, it feels like we're 
there's something deeply wrong with who and what we are. It's sinful or something. But if you take a different approach, looking at it through psychology, you can see much more easily that, no, it's not that you are a bad person. It's that you're an animal that was evolved in a certain way with certain instincts, and those sometimes pop up. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you need to work on your habits a little bit more to rein those in. And that's something that Michael Dowd has talked a lot about with the struggles he's had, where uh, he's been able to move on in his life and become a better person through unburdening himself of that kind of existential moral weight. And there's Morals are still involved, but it's not this, I am a bad person, period. It's, no, there are these factors that make me, you know, I'm evolved to have urges that don't work anymore today in our society, and I just need to work on it from there. So in that sense, for me, psychology liberates. And I think that's a, a great point because I think in our culture, there is a lot of people dealing with the guilt and they feel trapped. They, they actually don't realize that by being, being guilty, you end up focusing on the problem and not looking for a solution. Yeah, that's because not, now you're trying to fix this problem this feeling you're having that, oh, I blew it, I did such and such, or I said such and such. How am, you know, the key here is how do we get to the point of using the tools of psychology to stop beating ourselves up, which is, it, it's, it's a worthless endeavor. It will never happen. One, I think you just pointed out. Number one is stop looking at it as sin, mm -hmm. evil, wrong. Look at it as evolution has, like you said, had strategies for dealing with survival that don't fit in the society. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now we can take the tools of psychology and spirituality, the, the spiritual practices, and counteract those tendencies and evolve further instead of stopping where we are. And that's why I think evolution, evolutional psychology is important. It helps us to know where we've been. Mm -hmm. And positive psychology and, and the various forms of that tells us where we need to go. So we can evolve further spiritually, personally, and, and character-wise. Because I find Buddhism is, is one of the few uh, religious systems that doesn't have a sin idea. Well, they say in Buddhism that all things arise from uh, prior causes. Yeah. Right, which they do. Yeah, and so and, that's and a very uh, scientifically compatible sort of uh, view. And it's actually well, more specific. It's causes and conditions. It's not just causes, it's conditions. And one of the things you'll find in psychology is conditioning. You'll find that, you, that, that in your own choices, when you make a choice, you block other choices. Every door that you open, you're closing doors. And so by doing that, you're eliminating options that you ha now have to do a workaround to get back to, to get into that option. And it requires more effort, more practice, more intentionality mm -hmm. in, in trying to deal with what is the thing that's hooking me up. It's not the feeling. It's the belief that what I'm doing is evil. Hmm. Well, just, just a little. Just 
just just a little nitpick there, Jay. Uh, they do. Buddhism does have a sense of karma, uh, um, which is very much morally tinged, but I wouldn't place it in the same category as sin, really. So to that extent, I would ag agree. But I think you made a yeah. really, really good point um, when you said that uh, when you're focusing on, oh crap, I blew it, um, it's much harder to not blow it in the very next moment of your life. Yeah. I find that at work all the time. If I make a mistake, then I've got a little bit of anxiety. That's like drawing my attention away from what I'm working on right now. And the most likely time for me to make a mistake is right after I've made another mistake. And so what I often do yeah. is I apply my understanding of how the human mind works that I've acquired through psychological models, as well as the ability to apply that in the moment that I've derived from practices like meditation so that I can understand what it is that I'm feeling, I can perceive it and recognize it at the moment that it's happening, and then rather than trying to force it away or any other kind of thing that doesn't really work very well, I just kind of am mindful of it, aware of it, and don't take it personally as like I'm a bad person, but just it's what happens in my body because of the way my with the kind of animal that I am and right now it has there's a certain combination of chemicals that are pumping through my body that are creating this anxiety this anxious feeling and that has a duration because it's coursing through me but if I cut off the cycle of thought that is creating or calling for that those that combination of chemicals then it will slowly decrease and I will slowly re regain my calm and my concentration and be able to do a much better job at my workplace. So psychology is giving you the ability to work with your mind instead of trying to fight it. Yeah, I'd say psychology in that case has given me the right way to think about it and practices like meditation have given me the right concentration and insight mm -hmm. into my mind to be able to put that knowledge to work. And, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that uh, advances in MRI and EEG technology have allowed us to start investigating uh, meditation methodologies and med meditation techniques and their effects on the brain. And that this can begin to give us some guidance into actual uh, evolution of the future practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. So that's another way in which uh, modern psychology uh, and uh, neuroscience can can help to guide practices in the future. Yeah, and that comes yeah. back to that science, evidence based. You know, people had meditated for you know two thousand five hundred four hundred years uh, within Buddhism, but there was no evidence that it did anything other than you know your personal life. And it's these uh, technologies that have allowed us to peer into the brain to help us get more actual data to see what is going on. And this is one of the reasons, this technology is one of the reasons we learned about neuroplasticity. That means that your, your mind can actually change. You, you know, you heard the old phrase, you mm -hmm. can't teach an old dog a new trick. Well, that's not true. You can actually change your brain. And it's through practices like concentration, meditation, 
and even some of the the mind games that you can play to help keep your mind, especially as you're getting older, keep your mind active, keep it, you know, it's kind of like a muscle, use it or lose it, you know, Mm -hmm. keep it active, keep it thinking, keep it uh, in motion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You can change it to a certain extent within limits. It's not like right. lose the movie Lucy, <laughs> where that old that old I don't know where it came from, but that that urban myth or whatever it is that we only use ten percent of our brain, which is just not true at all. <laughs> no, use use a hundred percent of your brain. Yeah, but you can yeah. you can change within reason uh, some right. of the ways that your brain functions. You really can. You right. really can. And one I, an example right now is I am mindful of my. <laughs> desire to go on a rant about the 10% thing right now but I'm holding yeah. myself back. <laughs> no, I, I share the, the I share the uh the frustration. There's a lot of urban myths about psychology. Yeah. And that's why it's important to get back to the evidence. Mm-hmm. What does the evidence actually say? I'm interested in uh the question of uh and I think and I hope that we can provide this to our, our listeners that uh Okay, so all this sounds great, but um, what does it really mean? What does it really come down to? You know, I wake up in the morning, I, I meditate, and then what? It's a, you know, if I could answer my own question, at least in part, I think one of the elements is something I've uh, liked to say before regarding the the other philosophies and traditions. It seems to apply here as well, which is that some degree of learning, continued learning or study or reading or keeping up with the, the, the actual information should be integrated into our practice in some way, some time, study time or something like that. Um, so I think that's maybe one thing because how is psychology going to help you if you're not even aware of what the recent uh, findings about psychology are? So uh, but I think I'm interested also just in terms of like the day to day. What do people do? Hmm. You were saying, Brendan. Sorry, I, I was just trying to summarize what uh, what Daniel was saying there. You're saying the, your first part was uh, just saying um, we need to devote at least part of our week to actually researching a little bit of what what is the latest in psychology. I think that. Uh, you know, for me in my practice, I, I try to incorporate some reading, and that's not necessarily psychology. It could be psychology. It could also be, um, you know, actually, it could be, you know, Epictetus. It could be, you know, whatever part of my practice I'm trying to explore next. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would just throw psychology into that, or modern, or you know, all of the scientific, uh, you know, articles or you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. So at some point there has to be some intake of information about this stuff. Sure, of course. But then... But the problem, but, yeah, the problem is at that point then where do, I mean, psychology is such a vast field, where do we even begin? Yeah, know? we shouldn't even be trying to become psychologists. That's not the yeah. goal. Yeah, but how do we pick what uh, is helpful and not helpful with, yeah. you know... Well, I, you know, thousands and thousands of books on the subject. Maybe I can uh, kill two birds with one stone here, answering both Daniel's question and the one Jay just said. <laughs> so Daniel was uh, springboarding off of what we just talked about in order to ask, well, what it, what's it look like day to day? And then Jay was like, 
um, how do we pick where to start with mm. uh, psychology? And for me, nothing could be more relevant to day-to-day -day life than emotion. Uh, that's just me. But emotion is something that everybody experiences. You're going to experience it every day, even if it's just a little tinge of something here or there. Uh, and it, it can be great when it's, when it's a nice emotion, but it can be awful when it's a negative emotion, like the anxiety that I was talking about, like when I would make a mistake at work. And so where I think that the most good stands to be gained from researching psychology in terms of an everyday use standpoint is I think uh, researching the psychology of emotion and I put it to use every day and a perfect example is what I was talking about with when I make a mistake at work I understand like what is happening in my body at that time what's gonna work and what's not necessarily gonna work in terms of how I deal with it and then I apply that and at this point I should also mention to our listeners too we've been talking about psychology in a fairly vague way. We haven't been getting into specific facts or specific models, um, but it's not that we don't have those. It's more that in a half hour to one hour show, it's going to take up a lot of time and bore a lot of listeners for us to go into the details of the models. But it is that kind of detailed knowledge that grants you the liberating uh, power that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, you know, the question of uh, how do we know what to do? And, like I said, with the the ancient philosophies, it's the same thing there. There are harmful ones and unproductive ones uh, as well, and a lot of volume of material. So it's it's uh, it's one of the more complex questions. Uh, how do you know what to read and what what to uh, take into uh, that account? That might be. Yeah, too big of a question for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think, though, our start with an attention to uh, evidence and reason, that's that's obviously the nucleus. And I could recommend, uh, uh, BT did an excellent job in the introduction to uh, the spiritual naturalism uh, course. He does an excellent job at getting some of the, the practical, uh, how do you deal with emotion? Uh, factors. So he begins in that course to actually tell people how to deal with the emotions and, and how to build a spiritual practice based on that. And that, of course, is a multi-level uh, uh, evaluation of, of spiritual naturalism, but it, it does give a great preliminary introduction to how to deal with the emotional part that you're talking about. Is there any particular uh, book that really gives a good... Uh, introduction to the, 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 the emotions that you would recommend, uh, BT? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're going to have to write a book, I guess. Unfortunately. <laughs> well, you well, know, the, I was actually resisting the urge to, uh, to plug ourselves uh, at the society earlier when the question was asked, uh, you know, where can we find the information? But you're right. Our course is a great uh, place. And then also the... Uh, the many articles we publish, a lot of them touch on various uh, papers and psychological things, especially many of BTs, many of yours, BT. Oh, thanks. Yeah, actually, so creating the course, it, it, it was the most original part of the course is finding a way 
to take this very high-level academic psychological research and make it relevant and present it in a way that the average person can take in, understand, and apply. And that's the part that I am honestly the most most proud of in that course. I don't think there's anywhere else out there that does it um, at that level in that way with that kind of application. So what we do in the course is we offer in the first module there is the appraisal theory model of emotions and if you actually want to learn about that you have to really get into the details. So we've um, we've pres packaged it in a way that I hope is will save you a lot of the blood, sweat, and tears of that. Um, and then also uh, uh, there's a model of how the mind reasons because we actually have two reasoning faculties. Uh, the first one is what we normally think of where you consciously you know work things out from you know, logical premise to whatever but there's also an unconscious aspect that is also reasoning about your environment reasoning about um, all kinds of things. It's what we normally think of as intuition but it's a kind of reason and they interact in very interesting ways. We get into that and how it applies to your daily life. And in the third module, we talk a lot about uh, practice and um, what it takes to actually learn something and why it is that we have to suffer through, you know, doing really mundane things like meditation and stuff because we need to reform our mental habits, our mental habits, our emotional habits, and our behavioral habits. And then we see fruits. And the very last module of the course, we talk about happiness, a sense of worthwhile living and flourishing in life. And that gets into more of the positive psychology that you were talking about, Daniel. So it really is the, uh, one of the major focuses of the course uh, is how scientific research in psychology can be applied by any one of us to our lives every day. So I think that uh, it might be good at this point to switch to actual practices. What can we do uh, to put some of these, you know, spit maybe pick out a particular uh, psychological principle or, or, or method and apply it? Just so people can, because like you said, we've been talking abstract. We've told people, you know, you know, go go watch the course. But right now, I'm thinking, what can I do to, you know, see that psychology actually is is relevant? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people look at psychology as an irrelevant subject that's left to academics, but it's not. It, it's stuff that you can actually practice right here, right now, in real life situations. So, it, you you want to start, Brandon? Give us an example of of just one, maybe. Hmm. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> I think uh, now my mind is racing a little bit. Why don't you come back to me? <laughs> Daniel, do you have an idea? Um, I don't think my answer is going to be as good as yours, uh, Brandon, but, um, I, you know, I we always talk about meditation, and um, I think one of the reasons, um, maybe this is a good prelude to what Brandon might say next, but... One of the reasons we do that is because everything we've been talking about, um, whatever we might say next is what we would advise. Um, well, here's this and that principle about how your mind works and, and so on and so forth. 
to even begin to do any of that requires a certain level of mindfulness and attention. Uh, because so often when, when our emotions flare up, we're just caught in the moment. We're just taken control of by them. And if a person's in that state, uh, no amount of academic knowledge they have about psychology is going to mean anything. Um, so the reason we always talk about meditation is because it hones the ability to be mindful and aware of what's going on inside and outside uh, so that you can kind of step outside of it a little bit and apply that knowledge in the moment uh, and, and, and after the moment. And so uh, that's just a, like a – it's not really an answer to your excellent question, Jay, but it's kind of a little prelude that that highlights the state that we need to be able to cultivate in ourselves to even take advantage of what what Brandon's about to say, I would imagine. No, I agree. I, I think mindfulness is – it's taking psychology by storm because it's it's so diverse. You can use it in different uh, different psychology systems. Um, one of the things I would bring up for for me is the it's it's focused in compassion focused therapy. It's in Buddhism. It's the loving kindness meditation because you're going to run into people you just simply can't get along with. They're going <laughs> to rub you the wrong way. It's going to yeah. happen, guaranteed. Uh, if you have family, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so the point here is loving-kindness meditation is a way to retrain your brain to change its attitude towards a person by repeating into yourself once you reach – you have to do that mindfulness thing we talked about. Become mindful, become centered enough, and to wish them well, happiness, kindness, and continuing to program your mind to, to look at them in more a loving way actually will change the feelings because as behavior cognitive therapy has proven by multiple research uh, models that our thoughts affect how we feel. What we think ends up turning into some kind of a feeling. And if we can change the thinking, we can change the feeling. That's a very, very basic uh, introduction to cognitive behavioral therapy. Adding mindfulness to it, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, says you bring that mindfulness into it. Mindfulness, not so much trying to, you know, extract the, the negative thought, but replacing it with a positive thought, accepting what is. And then once you do that and you're realistic about what you're thinking, you find out many of our beliefs aren't true. You know, people say something, well, they hate me. Well, they don't hate you. They just <laughs> happen to be in a bad mood at that moment. In Stoicism, and, they call that uh, misjudgments. They say yep. that pathos arises from misjudgments. And it does. And, and cognitive behavioral therapy has shown that. So for me, I think loving kindness meditation, loving kindness practice uh, is one of the strongest ones because I've dealt with coworkers that just rub me the wrong way, and it, it works. It, mm. it, it it eliminated that sore spot. It's like you have a sore that's been hit over and over and over and over again, and it's tender. And by practicing loving-kindness meditation, that tenderness slowly heals. So it's a wonderful, wonderful practice. Now I'm going to throw it back at Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now it's my turn. Okay, uh, well, I'm going to answer your question by teaching you guys and all the listeners one technique. 
It's one of my favorite techniques. It's also taught in the course, and it's pretty simple, and it's not even original. <laughs> I call it broadening, um, but it's basically something that I've developed based on what's done in Buddhism and Stoicism and all kinds of other traditions. It's actually meant to synthesize what's been taught in religious and philosophical things. If anything, what's original is just the way I think about it and the way I talk about it. Okay, so I call it broadening. And it is a technique that you can use when you encounter something where you are a little bit disturbed or by something or upset by something. Okay, so some emotional reaction is going on within you and uh, you are seeking to rebalance the harmony, so to speak. In your vexed, in your as they life. would say, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps it may be applied to many different situations. Mm. So, um, say for example that you're walking down the street and you see uh, a black person, and you notice in yourself, regardless of what race you are, you notice in yourself a racist thought come up. Now, you could take the route and be like, oh, uh, I have a bad person, I must be a racist, or something. Or you could, there's a whole other um, bunch of, so many other ways that you can approach that, but instead, what I would recommend is this technique, broadening. It consists of three steps. The first step is noticing, the second step is observing, and the final step is the broadening itself. Noticing means you have, before you can do anything, you have to notice that this is actually happening in you. Because a lot of times what goes on in our mind, we don't even know it until somebody around us points it out. You notice that when you're getting angry, for example. Um, you know, you, you're just, you feel like you're just talking, but your friend says, why are you raising your voice? And you're like, I'm not raising my voice. But then you realize, oh yeah, I guess I am. So before anything, you have to notice that something's going on inside you. Okay. Second, observing. It's very difficult just to make a change in your mind. It, just because you will it to happen does not make it happen. It's difficult. Uh, and it's tempting to start getting really involved in the thought, either in the thought itself or in judgments of yourself about the thought, like, oh, I'm a bad person, I'm a racist. Instead, after you notice it, observe it. What does it feel like in you? How, what kind of uh, sensations does it create in your gut? Does it make your skin feel a little bit prickly, uh, like with kind of hot pins and needles, like shame sometimes can do, for example? Is your, uh, does your breath change? Does your breath become kind of constricted or ragged, etc.? And the point of that is to kind of bring you to a mindset that's kind of a little bit outside the experience, just enough that you can have a, sort of a healthy perception onto it. Um, so observing helps you to calm a little bit, get some perspective on what's going on inside you. And that step, the observing, can go as long as it needs to go until you're ready for the final step, which is broadening. And the broadening is where you take the experience and you put it in a broader perspective. 
because in the immediate moment when you have an emotional reaction, like what we're talking about, oh, I'm a racist, I'm a bad person, it, you tend to be very locked into that situation. You can't see anything else around you. You've got blinders on, and all you can think, all you can believe is what you're telling yourself through this emotion. I'm a bad person. Broadening opens up your perspective, and depending on what your beliefs are about human beings, uh, for example, I think that it's part of natural human psychology that we fear others who are not like us, that do not look like us, that doesn't excuse it, but it's a part of our physiology. It, so you broaden it by placing the experience within a wider perspective, in this case, uh, as I just described it, part of our human physiology, the way we're evolved to be. That's a wider perspective, a deeper understanding. And what you do there is you not only make the experience not about you, but about how things are in the universe, but also you kind of connect to a lot of other different uh, parts of your knowledge and experience that add a richer um, a, a richer view of what is happening in front of you at the moment. And I find at that point, when you can manage to do that, to do the broadening aspect, that's where you're able to make a change in how you're actually feeling. You don't force the change, but at that point, it starts to happen on its own. Because at that point, you have changed the experience that is unfolding before you. Now you've got a richer perspective for your emotional side of you to react to. Now it's no longer just reacting to the thought that you had, that racist thought. Now you're reacting to a whole variety of contexts and facts drawn on this experience, and that can change the emotion that you have. So that is what I call the technique of broadening. And it's the three steps. Noticing, because you can't do anything until you realize that something's going on inside you. Then it's observing, because it's very difficult to just jump straight into trying to change your behavior. Um, so you observe it for a while to get the necessary perspective. And then finally broadening, putting it in a wider context to try to get uh, a deeper perspective on what's going on. And there at that point is when you have a moment of leverage to uh, potentially change your emotional experience. Now they can stop the recording, replay that, and listen to it again. Because I think that's no, it's an awesome, awesome. Some of the things that you said are are so well, all of it, but some of the things that stood out to me is the observation part. We get so trapped in our head and in our thinking that the only way we can get out that is come back to our body, notice our breathing. You know, sometimes we're stressed, we don't notice it. I, I don't know about you, but I've been sometimes sitting and I'll stop and I'll take just a moment of mindfulness to be aware of my body and I realize, whoa, I'm tense. What's going on? We, there's so much in our life that goes by so quick that we just don't pay attention. Noticing is sometimes our most difficult thing. That thought sometimes, you know, a thought will come in and it will stress us out. And we don't even notice it. It's an it's amazing uh problem that we get into is just living our life on autopilot. We need to turn autopilot on and come back into our life, realize what's actually going on, realize what's going on in our mind and in our body to actually be able to to solve some of these difficulties. Yeah, you know, the, that those three steps that that you mentioned, uh, Brandon, they 
there's so much in those too. Um, each one of those could be unfolded and unfolded and unfolded. Uh, it's a it's a really great summary, but like you know, it touches on so much. Touches on uh, know thyself. <laughs> That's uh, a principle that touches on that. Uh, Marcus Aurelius said uh, we should watch ourselves like a, a like a guard on watch. <laughs> you know, uh, and so there's, there's like uh, so much excellent stuff in what you just summarized, and um, it really, to me, it 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 sounds like an encapsulation of a process of becoming uh, more conscious. And you know, we talk about spirituality as raising consciousness to where the point where this phrase "raising consciousness" just becomes this kind of new agey you know, undefined thing, but it quite literally is a process whereby we become more conscious of, of what and who we are and how we function. And it's the, uh, um, diagnosis part of, of, of our whole endeavor to, uh, you know, work on ourselves, become our own mechanic. Yeah. If you, if you, don't diagnose a problem it can never be fixed you don't realize you have a problem mm. it's not a problem for you everyone else has to deal with it but it's not a problem for you <laughs> well uh guys we're we're gone uh almost an hour now and um so do we have any final thoughts anybody uh you guys want to offer up to wrap well, us up i did want to mention one other um branch of psychology is called ecotherapy and it's a relatively, it's a newer branch of psychology that's dealing with studying the effects of nature. And as naturalists, this, of course, is important. We're finding that, in fact, we need that connection with nature. I mean, we live in such isolated, fabricated uh, places. We live in a house that's not natural. We drive in a car that's not natural, although we can see out the windshield. Then we go to work and, you know, sit in a cubicle, which is not natural. And they're finding that this detachment from nature is actually having uh, consequences for our lives. And it's so important. Um, ecotherapy is saying we need to get back and reconnect with nature. And one of those branches is called West, uh, our wilderness therapy, where you actually just go out and live in the wilderness for some of us, it's just getting out into the park and just, you know, looking at the green grass and the trees or reconnecting with nature can, can give us a rejuvenization. We can renew ourselves by just reconnecting with nature. And that, I think, is the message of ecotherapy. Although it's also, there's branches trying to take the clinical setting out into nature, and that seems to be uh, benefiting people to open up and be more honest, be more real. So there's it's a new branch, and, and there's a lot of research doing going into that. So it's an interesting branch I just wanted to mention. That's fascinating. Yeah, that is really cool, yeah. Uh, for me, just, I guess, two things. One is I realized after I went into that whole broadening thing, I should probably also clarify that the point of it is not just to soothe yourself, which is important, especially in this mm. particular example of, you know, having a racist thought. It's not just about feeling better about who you are, but going back to what we said toward the earlier part of the show, you're much more able to accept the thought that you just had and then overcome it 
and then bring a non-racist uh, approach to whatever situation should arise with this person that you're meeting, then if you feel uncomfortable with your with that thought, push it out of your mind, and and then it just is still there, kind of eating away at you, but subconsciously. So it's yeah. not just about making yourself feel better. It's actually about empowering yourself to be a better person in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's the important thing is it's not repression. Yeah. Repressing, suppressing doesn't solve a problem. It just buries it. And it's not a kind of correction that comes about as some sort of admonition. Rather, it's the kind of improvement and growth that will lead to new and fruitful and happier lands. Mm -hmm. Self-understanding. Exactly. Yeah, and it's that kind of like, wow, isn't this great? I'm going to be able to go forward. I'm going to you know, get into new places than I've been before and experience life in new ways. Uh, so it's with that sense of adventure and positivity, I think, that's going to be most helpful to us. Yep, yeah, I agree. So the other thing that I wanted to end on is just by reiterating the two so-whats of psychology for me. So psychology opens the way by helping you to think in categories and concepts that you know have some accuracy, as best that we can tell. And psychology liberates by allowing you to accept yourself for who and what you are, a certain kind of evolved animal, and then grow from there. Mm. Well, thank you both so much, uh, uh, and thank you uh, to the listener for, for listening to our podcast. Um, Jay, Brandon, uh, it's been wonderful talking with you as always. So this has been uh, you know Spiritual Naturalism Today that you're listening to, and uh, if you uh, would like to learn more, check out our website, of course, uh, spiritualnaturalistsociety.org, and uh, we have a page there with each episode, and you can comment, leave your comments, and we'll, we always read and respond to all the comments. So, uh, yeah, let us know what you think. And until next time, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Jay Forrest is our technical director. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.